Well, friends, brothers, and sisters, I bring you greetings from Arlington Baptist Church. It's a privilege to co-labor with you, uh, our church family, with your church family, uh, in the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm grateful to be a friend with your pastor. I had the privilege this past week of rooming with him at a conference we were at together. It was wonderful to uh, laugh at each other. Uh, to pray with one another. Your pastor is uh, a wonderful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, He's also strange at times. One of the first things he does uh, when he gets to a hotel room is to uh, iron his shirts. And, uh, And so I just handed him mine. And he, 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 he ironed them for me. So he's not only strange, he's also a wonderful servant. And it's a privilege to be a co-laborer with him uh, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so I bring you greetings from our congregation. We pray for you regularly and thank you for praying for us. We, we need it, so keep praying for us. And I would like to just pray one more time before we begin our study of God's word together. Let's pray together, okay? Father, you tell us in your word that that those who walk in your law are are blessed. Father, we are are blessed to have your law, your word. And we pray and ask that you would open it to us this morning. We need uh, understanding from above. We need your help. We need your illumination by your spirit. So we pray and ask that you would give it for for our good, for our uh, conviction of sin for our comfort in Christ, for our counsel for life in this world. Father, would you give all of this to us and more? We pray and ask for your glory's sake, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You, you, um, you might could say, I was born in Arkansas, so might could is a southern phrase, you might could say, Uh, that we live in a world that's obsessed with safety and security. And that this was true uh, even before COVID. Um, You could think this is true even before. Set aside, really, the the, the masks and the gloves and the plastic shields and the sanitizer and the PPE. And just think about the astounding number of safety and security products that are available for us to purchase. We we purchase insurance, right, To, to protect us, to give us safety and security, from financial ruin should we face some calamity. So you can purchase auto insurance, homeowner's insurance, life insurance, pet insurance, renter's insurance, small business insurance, traveler's insurance, and still more. Uh, If you are afraid of having your identity stolen, uh, you can purchase protection, safety, and security from identity theft. You can purchase it from Identity Force, Identity Guard, Privacy Guard, LifeLock, Identity IQ, Xander, ID Watchdog, ID Shield, Experian, and still more. Um, don't forget that we love alarms. Well, not really the ones that get us up in the morning, uh, but house alarms, car alarms, fire alarms. They keep us and our things safe and secure. And to, to make sure that we catch those who uh, break into our homes or our cars, we, we have cameras. You can uh, buy them made by Arlo or Ring or Nest or others. We feel insecure, and so we purchase locks. There are padlocks, knob locks, lever handle locks, cam locks, mortise locks, Euro profile cylinder locks. And who can forget the lock that, of course, gives us great peace of mind, the dead bolt. Uh, no, we worry about security. We, we worry about technological insecurity. So we have passwords and password documents and password programs to protect our passwords. If you were to take a step back and look at all of these 
products, uh, you would not be wrong to conclude that we as a society are deeply concerned with safety and security. You, you wouldn't be wrong to come to the conclusion that we are in fact or feel terribly insecure. And that's to say nothing about our emotional state as a society. Maybe you have some of those uh, security products or protections that I just mentioned. Maybe you've purchased them to give you peace of mind. Maybe you are concerned for the safety and security of yourself or your loved ones or your things. But what about your soul? Who or what can keep your soul safe? Who keeps your soul safe from sin? Who secures you for salvation? All of the products that I mentioned a moment ago can make no promise. They can offer no protection. They can provide no lasting peace for your soul. So who keeps your soul safe and secure? Who is the only one who can provide you with eternal protection, whose promises cannot fail, and who can ensure everlasting peace? Well, this morning, from Psalm 125, we learned that it is only the Lord God who can keep your soul safe. What is more, Psalm 125 urges you to trust the Lord to protect you, to keep his promise, and to give you peace. That's the lesson that we learn from Psalm 125. If you haven't done so already, open your Bibles uh, to Psalm 125, your copy of God's Word. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I think it's on page 607. And when you arrive at the psalm, you will likely notice uh, an inscription there at the top that says something like a song of ascents. This is a, a particular kind of psalm in the uh, Psalter. Uh, the Psalms of Ascents, they begin there at Psalm 120. They conclude with Psalm 134. And these psalms, they were sung by the ancient Israelite pilgrims who made their way up to Jerusalem for the three annual feasts. These psalms were composed at different times in Israel's history, but they were probably eventually compiled as a finished set, a, a mini psalm book, with a uh, mini hymn book, really, within the larger hymn book that is the Psalter, uh, probably sometime after the Babylonian captivity. And these psalms, they're, they're useful to us in our spiritual journey. Like the ancient Israelite pilgrims, we too are, are headed somewhere. The ancient pilgrims, they were headed to Jerusalem for worship. And we are headed to the new Jerusalem, where we will see our God face to face. And as such, these songs, they teach us how to be happy and holy and heavenly minded on our journey to heaven. This morning, as we begin to study Psalm 125, we learn that we ought to trust the Lord to protect us, to keep his promise, and to give us peace. That's the message of Psalm 125 in a single sentence. Trust the Lord to protect you, to keep his promise, and to give you peace. See if you can spot this in the psalm itself as I read. I'm going to read from uh, the ESV. I think you've got the NIV there before you. Uh, they're very close, so only a few words may be different. Um, follow along as I, I read. A song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But to those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. 
peace be upon Israel. Trust the Lord to protect you. Trust the Lord to keep his promise. And trust the Lord to give you peace. Those are the three simple points that we're going to follow this morning. It's the outline of the rest of our sermon. Trust the Lord to protect you. That's what we see in verses 1 and 2. Trust the Lord to keep his promise. There's a promise there in verse 3 that we're going to look at. And then in verses 4 and 5, we see a prayer for peace. Trust the Lord to give you peace. Let's begin with our first point. Trust the Lord to protect you. Take a look again at verses 1 and 2. Let me just read those again. Those who trust the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. I hope it's plain to see that these verses encourage us to trust the Lord for protection. There are two pictures in these verses. In the first, we're given a picture of God's people standing secure as an immovable mountain. And then in the second, we're given a picture of God surrounding his people. First, we're told there, you see, that those who trust the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. In this picture, we see that the person who places their faith in the Lord is likened to Mount Zion. Mount Zion was also known as Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, where the temple of God resided. And whenever we read about Jerusalem or Mount Zion in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, we're reading about people going up to Jerusalem because it was something of a mountain. It made it desirable in that sense, a desirable place to to situate the capital city. And mountains, as you know, typically don't move. Really, apart from the supernatural work of God, they're going to stay right where they are. Now, this is the, the, the picture of a stable and secure person who is trusting in the Lord. And it's appropriate that Mount Zion's chosen for this particular picture. After all, Mount Zion is where the, the pilgrims were headed. So they're, they're seeing this mountain. They're given an image uh, of what their faith in the Lord, how it secures them, even as they make their way there, provided a, a visible and valuable picture. Imagine an ancient Israelite singing this song on the way to the feast with the, the mountain in view. What, what an encouragement that would have been. But as we're going to see in our psalm, and as we've already read, not everyone is stable and secure like a mountain. Only those who trust in the Lord are stable and secure like Mount Zion. Not every ancient Israelite, not everyone claiming to be a Christian is stable and secure and movable like a mountain. By the time we get to the end of the psalm, we're going to see that there are some among the visible people of God, that is some claiming to be God's people, who do not trust the Lord but instead turn aside to sin. And so we're led away to judgment. Not everyone is stable and secure like Mount Zion. Only those who trust in the Lord are immovable like Mount Zion. So the question is, what what does it mean to trust? What does it mean to trust in the Lord? And really, you need to ask yourself, are you trusting in the Lord? Experientially, we have an idea of what it really means to trust in the Lord, don't we? Uh, we, we know what it means to trust in someone here, here in our own lives. So, for example, in, in, in my congregation just a couple of months ago, a couple by the name of Evan and Aaron, they, they moved from one apartment to another. And they trusted our church family to turn up and, and help them. They, they didn't hire another set of movers to be on site, right? And if they, if they don't show up, if the church family doesn't show up to move us, you know, we're just going to call upon them. No, they, they trusted in the church family completely. 
Uh, they, they knew that Ray would turn up with his hand truck and, and move everything about, and that he's a master packer. They knew that the kids would be buzzing around, picking up the little things that they could move and, and move them onto the truck. They knew that old men like me uh, work on coffee and donuts, so they provided them. They trusted us to turn up, and, and they had good reason to. They had seen the church family move people time and time and time again. Well, we, we do this all, all the time in our lives, don't we? We trust other people. We trust them implicitly. And we need to trust and depend upon God. Uh, th- that's, that's what it means to trust in the Lord. To have the, the confidence that he is faithful and displayed his faithful character in the past. And you'll be faithful in the present as well. So we rest our, our whole lives upon the Lord. And we, we've seen this even in the scriptures themselves, right? Think of Abram or Abraham. He, he trusted the Lord's promise that he would give him a land. And so he left his he trusted him with his whole life. He trusted his, his family and his wife in the Lord's hands. And he, he acted in light of those promises for the most part. I mean, his, his faith went wobbly from time to time, didn't it? Just as ours does from time to time. But the main tenor of Abraham's life was one of faith. It was one of trust, of believing that God would keep his promises to him. The people who were first singing this psalm in faith were trusting that God would one day send his son, the offspring of Abraham, the son of David, the Messiah and king, who would come to save God's people from their sins. Like Abraham, and like the the first uh, Israelites who sang this psalm, have you entrusted yourself and your eternal future to the Lord? Like Abraham, do you trust that the Lord's going to give you an eternal land? Have you come to trust the Lord and his promise that all who believe in his son, the Lord Jesus, will be saved? Have you come to trust that whoever believes in Jesus, as we prayed earlier, will not perish but have eternal life? Have you come to trust God's promise that those who believe in Jesus, the good shepherd, will remain stable and secured as we prayed, safely kept in his hands? There's one thing that we need to come to understand about our trust and our stability and our security in the Lord, and that's this. It is not our trust which guarantees our security, but the one we trust in, our Lord. Uh, I remember one, um, the Genevan reformer, who said that Christ receives even the weakest of faith. It is the Lord Jesus who keeps us safe and secure. And that's why um, the second and complementary picture here in verse 2 is so helpful. That's why it announces the reason that we are finally safe is because we're safely surrounded by the Lord. You see the second picture there, it's found in verse 2, is of God surrounding and securing his people. If, if those who trust in the Lord are stable and secure like Mount Zion, they're unmoved, then the Lord God is like the mountains which surrounded Mount Zion, Jerusalem. The, the psalmist here is trying to describe some geography for us, which we, we may not be really familiar with. Uh, Jerusalem uh, as uh, some have said, is like uh, it's situated like the, the bump in the bottom of a bowl. So Jerusalem is a, a smaller mountain, but surrounded by larger mountains. Mount Zion was so safely situated. Uh, that's what made Jerusalem or Mount Zion such a desirable location. It was well defended, not merely by the massive walls of the city, but by the wall of mountains surrounding it. You see the picture that the psalmist is, is giving us? That the Lord surrounds and secures his people, and that is why they are safe. Just put the two pictures together now. You see what they mean? Trust the Lord to protect you. 
Trust those who trust in the Lord are like an immovable mountain. But that is only because the God in whom they trust surrounds them like a wall of even larger immovable mountains. And there's an additional inducement, encouragement to our faith in these verses that I passed over. It turns up really in both verses. Do you see the last words of verse 1 and verse 2? You see those words forever and forevermore? The Lord's protection, really his protective presence of those who trust in him endures forever. Our God has promised never to leave us or forsake us. And he will surely do as he promised. And by way of application, it is imperative that you as a church family look to the Lord alone as your protection. It's tempting to look to the world's power structures, isn't it? It's tempting to look to other sources for protection. It's easier to trust the things that we see sometimes in the Lord that we do not see. But brothers and sisters, we don't trust in horses and chariots. We don't trust in changing administrations. We don't trust in justices. We don't trust in constitutions or protections that they afford or presently promise. We don't trust in governmental representatives, whether they be local, state, or federal. Yes, it's appropriate and good and right for us to pray for all of them. We don't finally put our trust in them, though. We trust finally in the Lord. We don't trust in money. We trust in the maker. We trust in the Lord God alone. And while this is true for your church family, it ought also to be true for you as an individual Christian and follower of the Lord Jesus. You ought not trust in any earthly securities you have, though it may be wise to protect some of those security measures, uh, purchase some of those security measures that we, we talked about earlier. We don't trust in our wealth, our health, our knowledge, our networks. The Lord does not promise to protect our, our persons, our positions, our possessions from harm or loss, but he does promise to protect our eternal souls. If the Lord were to take everything away, could you bless him like Job? Job was stripped of everything, and he was found to be a man trusting in the Lord. What a challenge. If you were left with nothing but the Lord, you would have everything and really everyone that you need. Children, youth, uh, young adults, you, you need to know that eternal safety and security is the special privilege of those who trust in the Lord. Give your hearts to him. Make the Lord God, make Jesus your shield and defender through faith. He will not fail those who trust in him. Moms, uh, at the end of this day, at the end of every day, there is nothing you can do to secure your children's salvation except to get on your knees and plead with God to issue an arrest warrant for their souls and their hearts to come to him in repentance and faith. So plead with God to save your children. Pray verses 1 and 2. For your kids, pray that they would be those who trust in the Lord. Uh, single people, what you need most is not to be safe in the arms of another human lover, but safe in the arms of God. And that is hard when affections, natural affections, rise up from within. Still remember your heart will be restless until it finds rest in the Lord. Trust the Lord to protect you from this time forth and forevermore. And we should all be amazed by God's grace that he would want to protect people like us. People who've rebelled against him. People who have not only had dark thoughts, but have spoken cruel words and have done dastardly deeds. God loves us and he protects us. What a kindness from him that he should set his love upon us 
in Jesus Christ. Let's trust him with all that we have and all that we are. Well, we've seen that this psalm teaches us to trust the Lord to protect us. Let's turn now and consider the second lesson of this psalm. Trust the Lord to keep his promise. He gives us a glorious promise there in verse 3. Read verse 3 again. For the scepter of, the, of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. And here, I, I think what the author of the, the psalm means to say is, here's a further reason for trusting the Lord for your protection. God is not going to let the rule of wickedness endure. Or, or to put it positively, God is going to overthrow the rule of wickedness so that you are eternally protected. Why, why do I say that God will overthrow the rule of wickedness? Well, you see there that, that word scepter, uh, as, as you may know, a scepter is a, a symbol of rule and power. When you think about it, though she rarely brings it out, the Queen of England, she has a, a scepter. It's a symbol of her rule over her realm. It's a symbol of her reign. Well, this scepter mentioned here in this psalm, it's described as a scepter of wickedness. And by that, the psalmist means to communicate that this scepter, this rule, uh, is contrary to the rule of righteousness. It's contrary to the rule of God's law, God's will, and God's way. And what is clear is that life under this rule of this scepter, it's a danger to God's people, isn't it? Uh, they're tempted to stretch out their hands to do wrong. And God promises and purposes to remove that scepter so that they are protected from being tempted beyond what they can bear. Just let that sink in for a minute. God's people, whenever they live under wicked rule, they are tempted to do wrong, to pursue wickedness. And maybe you felt that this past week. And God, he knows our frame. He knows the weakness of his people and he purposes and plans and promises to protect us. He works to do that. He employs his strength to accomplish our rescue and salvation in light of our weakness. Now, here, here's where the promise of verse 3 is so powerful. God promises that this scepter will not rest, which is to say it will not remain, it will not abide, it will not forever dwell on the land allotted to the righteous. In other words, though the scepter of wickedness resides on the land, apparently now, it will not remain there forever. It will not rest because God will give his people rest from it. This is a promise to remove the wicked scepter. You could be sure that God does not intend for there to be a power vacuum among his people after that wicked scepter is removed. You know, in the words of, of Psalm 2, he intends to install a righteous ruler on Mount Zion, his holy hill. Now, we're not given the historical situation of this psalm. So, so we're simply kind of left to guess what circumstances might have been uh, when this psalm was first written. When I was reading through this um, psalm with another brother in my congregation, we, we puzzled over this question. What, what might be the context when this first emerged? We thought about maybe, maybe this situation is one of the wicked kings of Judah uh, was reigning over God's people. Perhaps on one of those occasions when a, a king of Judah even brought idols into the temple and tempted God's people to do wrong. Maybe that was one of those occasions. Or perhaps it was in when God's people were languishing in exile. Uh, does this scepter of rule refer to the, the Babylonians? Did it refer to that period of time when the people of God were tempted just to, to live just like the people they were living among with their wicked ethics and morals? Maybe. But, but might I suggest that for those with eyes of faith, they would have seen in this promise a shadow 
of really what was to come in full in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think back to the Garden of Eden for a moment. In the Garden of Eden, the the scepter of of wickedness entered in. The the scepter of the serpent, Satan, entered into the world. He began to exert his, his wicked rule over men and women made in God's image. He has certainly used um, governments to do that, but he's also used false religions and the consensus of a prevailing culture or world to extend the scepter of his wickedness over mankind. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air that is at work in the sons of disobedience. His scepter has sway in this world, leading men and women to sin. And apart from God's grace to remove that scepter, we all remain under its sway. As you may know, sin entered into the world in the Garden of Eden when Adam stretched out his hands to do what was wrong, to eat the forbidden fruit. And all mankind has followed in the footsteps of that first man. We have all stretched out our hands to do what was wrong in God's sight. But even there in the Garden, remember, God made a a glorious promise that one day he would send his son and king to crush the head of the serpent and to bring Satan's rule over God's people to an end. This is the promise in verse 3. It's ultimately looking forward to Jesus Christ, where he defeated the serpent and broke Satan's rule. Through Jesus' life and death and resurrection from the grave, through the sending of the Holy Spirit to unite us to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, God has removed the scepter of wickedness over his people. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we're told that God himself took on flesh in the person of Jesus so that, listen to what the writer of the Hebrews says, so that through Jesus' death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Or we might say in Jesus' death and resurrection, he delivered God's people out from under the scepter of wickedness. Now the removal of the rule The scepter of wickedness has taken place in the lives of those who by God's grace have turned from their sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has graciously begun to remove the rule of that scepter so that his people would not stretch out their hands to do what was wrong. But now, by the gracious aid of God, would stretch out their hands to do what is right. I wonder, has God removed the scepter of wickedness from your heart and life? Did you know that it could be removed? Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you this day to come under the rule, the scepter, the reign of the Lord Jesus. I want to invite you to believe that Jesus has lived the perfect life for you, that in his death on the cross, he was paid the punishment for your sins, and that he broke Satan's power in your life when he was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. You can have your sins forgiven in God's sight and Satan's power in your life broken by the reigning power of the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart. Come to him, turn from your sin and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will give you grace to resist Satan's temptations and to follow after God's righteous ways. This is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ that he has come to break and remove this scepter from our lives. There's another aspect of verse 3 that might raise questions for us as well. Perhaps you think to yourself, the text says, Mike, the text says that he would remove the scepter of wickedness from the land. Doesn't this mean that God would remove the scepter of wickedness from a particular portion of the world? 
Well, if I may, I'd like to suggest that on the last day, that God will remove the scepter of wickedness from the whole world. While so many of the promises concerning the land of the ancient people of God conjured up ideas about a physical piece of land in the Middle East, those who trusted in the Lord were ultimately looking forward to a heavenly land. Those Israelites who first received the promises concerning the land in faith recognized that the land was a type and shadow of the full promise of God. They received the promise of the land of Canaan with grateful hearts, but they were finally looking forward to the promised land of heaven. We know this because of what the author of Hebrews tells us about Abraham. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, he told us that Abraham himself, the very first one who received the promise of land from God, was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer is God. We're even told that he, Abraham, desired a better country, that is a heavenly one, Hebrews eleven sixteen. And while Abraham was certainly looking forward to inheriting the promised land of Canaan, his greater hope was inheriting the promised land of heaven. Abraham knew and trusted God that Canaan was a type and shadow of the full promise of that heavenly land. And because these saints trusted God, we are told that God prepared for them a city. And you can be sure that there is no scepter of wickedness in that city. And you can be sure that it is ruled by the scepter of uprightness, which is the scepter of Jesus' kingdom, as Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 tells us. And Christian, these promises are ours too. The promises of the new heaven and the new earth, they're ours. That's our land that we're going to receive where Jesus' scepter of righteousness rules. There's no more sin. There's no more injustice. There's no more unkindness and rudeness. There is love and grace and mercy there. And that is a promise that God's word holds out to us. And it's for those who trust in his son, Jesus Christ. And at present, Jesus, though he has removed the scepter of Satan from the hearts and lives of his people, he has not yet removed the scepter of Satan from the whole earth. We know that through our experience of life in this world, don't we? We see this. To use the language of the author of Hebrews, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. We live in this age of God's salvation in Jesus Christ that has been inaugurated. It's, it's begun. But it's not yet consummated. It's not yet completed. The removal of the scepter of wickedness has already begun. But it has not yet been totally removed from the land. It's been broken, but not banished. So, we need to think about some application of living in such a world, living in a world where there's this remaining presence of the scepter of wickedness in our world. We need to think about how we ought to live until that day comes when Jesus will fully and finally overthrow its reign on earth, just as he promised. We need to think about how we wait for the full consummation of our salvation. And we should not be naive. We should not be naive. We are susceptible still to the schemes of the wicked. Though it's been, though Satan's scepter and power has been broken in our lives, we are still susceptible to it from time to time. So un unless we are trusting in the Lord, unless we are immovable in Him, unless we are calibrating our consciences according to the Word of God, unless we're evaluating the world through the, the lens of the Scriptures, then we are open to the possibility of being swept along with the current of the culture, like a, a piece of driftwood moving downstream wherever the river flows. It's common to drift with the current. It's Christian to swim against it. If you often find yourself agreeing with the prevailing narratives in our culture, 
And you might be drifting with the current instead of swimming against it. Uh, one author, I think, illustrated this well as he was reflecting on Augustine's life. He, he, he wrote, Augustine, like ourselves, lived in a pagan culture. And therefore, in order to be Christian, had to be countercultural. Our pressing problem is practical. In our post-Christian culture, as in Augustine's pre-Christian one, we must question established custom and swim against the current upstream like salmon. Only live fish can swim upstream. Dead ones only go with the flow. The next time you hear someone argue against Christian morality by noting that this is the 21st century, not the first, remember that you are listening to a dead fish. I think that's instructive. Though we normally think of a rule taking uh, formal and kind of national taking place through a formal national governmental structure, it's also the case that other sectors reign in our society and have influence. There are forces which exercise influence that lead and guide society to make value judgments, to esteem one thing and to reject another. In truth, our society has something of a collective conscience. It's being reinforced through various streams, through uh, government, certainly, through media, big and small, online and print, social and otherwise. And Christian, you need discernment for, for all of this, for when, where, why, and how to engage or disengage such sources. Above all, you need to stop and ask, what does God's all-sufficient word say about these things? Is this something that accords with God's scepter of righteousness, his, his, uh, his law in his word? Or is this something that's out of step with God's righteousness? Is this part of Satan's scepter of, of wickedness? You should talk with mature, godly, wise, sober-minded Christians. Talk with your elders about what you're reading in the news or, 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 or thinking about. Uh, bring these things before wise and godly Christians that you trust. And, and remember that you go back to the scriptures to examine to see what God himself has said. Please to remember that you do not have to have a hot take. I think sometimes the scepter of wickedness rules through impertinence and impatience. You can slowly and methodically think about things before you speak about them. That's a wonderful character and Christian quality to evaluate them by God's word, to think and pray over them, and to meditate on them. Again, Jesus, he has removed the scepter of Satan from the hearts and lives of his people. He's, he's broken its power, and yet he's not, he's not yet removed Satan's scepter from the earth as a whole. While we live in this time between our salvation inaugurated, begun, and our salvation uh, consummated, completed, we must watch and discern the, the movements of the scepters of wickedness in our world. But even more important to that is to steady the righteous rule of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we, we know it so well that we intuitively know or have this sense that there's a difference between what is a straight path in God's world and what is a, a crooked path. Like the ancient pilgrims who sang this song, we need to keep plotting, keep trusting, and keep praying. And that's what we see next in our song. We see a prayer for God to do good to his people and to give his people peace. In fact, this prayer is an expression of trust. We, we ask because we trust God can answer. You should trust God to protect you. You should trust God to keep his promises. And you should trust God to give, his, give us peace. This is our third point. Trust the Lord to give you peace. Follow along now as I read verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 125. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, uh, to, uh, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. 
See, verses 4 and 5, they enunciate, I think, a prayer of faith. There are petitions at the beginning, at the end, with a warning in the middle. There is first the petition for God to do good to those who are good. This is followed by a warning to those who are crooked in heart. And then verse 5, and the whole psalm concludes with a prayer for peace. First, you'll notice that there is a plea for God to do good to those who are good in verse 4. And, and who are those who do good? Well, they're none other than those who are upright in heart. That, uh, that phrase explains the preceding phrase, really. Uh, this petition for God to do good to his people... I think is nothing less for uh, a petition and for a petition for God to make good on his promises, especially his promise to overthrow the rule and scepter of, the wick of wickedness mentioned there in verse 3. This good is to be done for those who trust in the Lord. This is how God secures and protects his people, by overthrowing the evil one. And we ought to pray for God to do this good for his people more and more. I think that you might have a church membership directory here. If you do, you should print one out. If it's electronic or if it's printed out, you should keep it with you and keep it in your Bible and pray, really, this prayer for your fellow brothers and sisters in your church family. Uh, you, you should pray for the Lord to do good to your brothers and sisters. Pray, oh Lord, do, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. Deliver them from evil this day. Deliver them from crooked ways. In that sense, it echoes Jesus' prayer in the Lord's Prayer, right? That he taught his disciples to pray. Deliver us from evil. What a wonderful prayer to pray for your brothers and sisters each day that they walk on this earth. And, and sometimes we get twisted up in knots when we come across a phrase like this in the Old Testament we see here. We remember that line from Jesus in the gospel. He says, no one is good but God. And we think to ourselves, how can we pray for God to do good to those who are good if no one is good but God? Well, I don't think we need to get twisted up in knots about this. So, so for example, our brother Chris is good. He's good not because he's righteous in and of himself, but because the Holy Spirit has united him to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And he has Jesus' righteousness credited to his count. And the Holy Spirit is working in his life and bringing out the fruit of the Spirit in his heart and life. Chris is good all by the grace of God. And it's appropriate for us to say that Chris is good. That we need to get twisted up in knots. We say these kinds of things or pray these kinds of things for our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is true of God's people because of the work that he has done in their hearts and lives. And so we, we should pray this for one another. God's people also not only are good, but they also do good, we see here. Because they're filled with gratitude for God's grace shown to them in Jesus Christ. All the goodness that anyone has arises from God. They are upright in heart because God has straightened out their crooked souls by the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it, it might be interesting to note that um, in another translation, uh, maybe it's a translation you have there, but my translation uses the word upright there at the end of verse 4. But another translation is just the word straight. And um, this might very well be the idea that we should take away from this verse. Something like, O Lord, do good to those who are straight in heart. And this shows the, the contrast between the straight and the crooked. The, the straight are those who deal with God in a direct and an honest and a straightforward manner. The straight trust God. They don't pretend to trust God. The straight, the righteous, walk God's straight path. They, they don't turn aside to crooked ways. And this is where we need to weigh the warning of verse 5. As I mentioned earlier, those in view here are those who profess to be among God's people. In, in other words, there are some among the visible people of God, that is some claiming to be God's people, who do not trust in the Lord but turn aside to sin, and so are led away to judgment with the rest of the evildoers. They turn aside from walking in God's ways to walk in crooked ways. 
Not everyone who professes to be a Christian is a Christian. Sometimes Christians, people professing to be Christians, are fake Christians. Sometimes people professing to be Christians are phony Christians. How do we know? They turn aside to crooked ways. And when corrected, they do not return to the Lord. They continue walking in those crooked ways. Maybe you are walking in crookedness before the Lord today. Maybe you're not dealing straight with God. Maybe you're not shooting straight with him, dealing with him directly or honestly. Maybe you want the benefits of his kingdom, like salvation and heaven and church family, but you don't want what you perceive to be the burdens of living according to his laws, his straight ways. We'll consider the end that is proposed here in verse 5. You'll be led away with the evildoers, and they will certainly be punished. Friend, hear this warning. Don't let this warning drive you away. Let it drive you to God. Ask him for forgiveness. He holds it out to you in his son, and he says, receive the righteousness of my son and receive the forgiveness of your sins. Ask him to conquer the scepter of wickedness in your heart, to break it, and to bring you under the rule and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you lack peace because you're not dealing directly with God. Maybe you lack peace because you're not shooting straight with him. Purpose today to turn from your sins, to deal honestly with God, and to trust God to give you peace through Jesus Christ. Pray for God to give you peace. Pray for God to end your war with him and to give you peace with him. This is a prayer. And it's also a benediction and a blessing. And it's what I want us to think about as we conclude. You know, we began this morning by thinking about how we are somewhat obsessed as a society with safety and security. We're obsessed with protection. Company after company make promise after promise that their product will provide protection. Have you ever stopped to consider that while those companies are trying to sell products for protection, what the buyer is really after is peace of mind. That's what anyone who purchase, purchases one of those products is after, peace of mind. And they're trusting those companies to deliver on their promises of protection. Do you want peace of mind? Better yet, do you want peace with God? If you do, then you must trust that God has made peace by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you want peace, then you must trust God to protect your soul and to keep all of his promises to you in Jesus Christ. Trust God to protect your soul. Trust God to keep his promises. Trust God to give you peace. Let's pray for that now together. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your majestic mercy and might towards sinners like us. Thank you for surrounding us with your power. Thank you for protecting your people and protecting them all the way to the end. Thank you for making such wonderful and glorious promises to us in the Lord Jesus Christ that there is forgiveness of sins and there is certain salvation in him and that you will hold us safe until the end. And Father, we pray and ask that as we live in a tumultuous world where we are confronted and made uncertain by the own fears in our hearts and even the fears that others are announcing in this world, 
that we can have peace because you have made peace for us and with us by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Oh, Father, give our souls rest and comfort and peace in Christ this day and every day until you call us home. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.